What's up, everybody? This is Daryl Terrell with The Real World. Today, I have a guest by the name of Colleen Barnett, who is a dietitian here in Oklahoma City. How you doing, Colleen? And welcome to the show. Pretty good. Thanks for having me. So, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Um, I am from Chicago, so I pronounce my name Colleen. Colleen. You guys in the South say Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, born and raised in Chicago. I just moved here about two years ago. I was in Texas for about a year doing my post-grad stuff, and then I accepted a job up here, and I've been here ever since. I figured if I really didn't like Oklahoma, I can always move back, but so far, so good. Awesome. So, wow. Welcome to the 405. Thank you. So tell us, you know, you're a dietitian. What got you interested in helping others with their diet and to help them get better? Um, I grew up playing sports and I primarily did softball. I did travel. I was a catcher and then I also did basketball and cross country and volleyball and what have you, probably any sport at one point. And I noticed somewhere in the high school range, I started eating like crap, just like not enough or, you know, typical girl stuff. You're like, oh, I want to eat that. And then you just don't eat. And I noticed my sports automatically went downhill or I wasn't recovering or I wasn't, you know, doing something. And that kind of got me into why does a cross country runner eat, you know, 16 Snicker bars and do, you know, great versus, you know, gymnastics or weightlifting and so on and so forth. And I'm really into science and I figured kind of combine the two and I got into nutrition science and I kind of went from there. And it was more about performance for me versus obviously health because I saw once I started eating better, my, you know, my breathing got better, my, my weights went way up, I was able to do longer runs, I was stronger, I was able to do a pull up for the first time, um, but, and then I kind of combined the two going forward. Awesome. So in your sports, you know, how, you know, you mentioned that it was affecting you um, energy wise. Mm -hmm. When did you first started noticing that how your eating patterns was affecting you, your energy and how you weren't, wasn't performing like you would normally do? Um, it, I mean, it was super simple. Like I'd go up the stairs in, in high school with like a backpack and I noticed by the time I got to like the fourth level, I'm like, man, I'm breathing really hard. My, my heart is going fast. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> like, so I just kind of interested in learning more about biology and science. I'd like start Googling, like, what's with the heart rate? Why is my heart going faster? Why was the perceived exhaustion of da 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 da? So I kind of went from there where I was like, wow, I need to eat more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's it's so simple. But like, I don't know when you're in high school and you're a young girl, you just think like, oh, I just, you know, I'll just have a tiny salad and like, that's my life now, which is stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I was a catcher and a very aggressive, very competitive player. Like I played high level softball, I was the team captain, like I wanted to do well. And so I saw that like my arm would be hurting after four games, whereas I used to be able to do, you know, three back-to-back um, -back games, four days a week and go to practice and go do all this stuff. And I noticed I just wasn't recovering. So I kind of had to put two and two together and kind of start researching. Nice. What is the biggest misconception about dietitians in your opinion? I'd say most people don't know what a dietitian is, so there's a lot. Um, to be a dietitian, that is a licensed term. Um, anyone can be a nutritionist. You can take a weekend course and call yourself a nutritionist, and there's no legal obligation to prove otherwise. Mm -hmm. Whereas a dietitian, you have to have a four-year bachelor's degree in uh, 
clinical nutrition or dietetics. And then afterwards, you have to do a post-grad internship that's required by our academy that credentials us. That is about 1,200 hours supervised. Um, most of them are unpaid. Most of them, you pay them. I paid $10,000 to do an internship to work for free. And then, wow. And then after my 1,200 hours of supervised practice, which is in hospitals, long-term care facilities, you can do gyms, but they're not as often. Uh, often. Mm -hmm. um, after you do that, you have to sit for a board exam, and then I have to pass that. And then, depending on the state, then I also get licensed. So I'm licensed in Oklahoma. I can only practice in, in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. If I were to go back to Chicago, I have to be licensed in Chicago. Um, I would say going off of that, there is so many different types of dietitians, just like there are different types of mechanics and doctors. And I think sometimes dietitians get lumped into like one big they do everything and make you lose weight where there's bariatric dietitians, there are cardiovascular dietitians, there's sports dietitians, and one dietitian's not gonna be good at doing the other thing. Um, and so I think that's the biggest misconception is that most people just don't know what the dietitian is compared mm -hmm. to a nutritionist. Um, and I always kind of joke, if you wanna know the difference, um, the dietitian will tell you because they get really uh, angry being called a nutritionist. Oh. <laughs> it's kind of a joke. I mean, I've never been offended, but they earn that title of a dietitian. And so when you get called a nutritionist, it's almost like, ah, anyone can be a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. I'm a dietitian. Gotcha. You know, with so many people going to dietitians mm -hmm. um, nowadays, why do you think that there isn't more legalization as far as criteria that a certain person should have in order to truly become a legit dietitian? Um, that's a good question. I think the credentialing body to make me a dietitian, we call it, it's the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they've kind of hobarded the whole profession as you have to go through these loops and bounds and everything to become a dietitian, which I think is good. Um, incredibly difficult and if I were to do it again I probably wouldn't just because it cost me so much time and money it took me six years and ten, wow. and ten grand and all this other stuff and starting a couple years from now I believe 2023 you have to have a master's degree to be a dietitian I'll be grandfathered in but you have to have a master's the caveat is that it could be any master's which I don't like I could have, I could have a master's in basket weaving <laughs> and that is my master's degree which is Pretty ridiculous in my opinion so anyways I'm getting off the tangent so I think it's difficult because the Academy has made it so difficult and so pinpoint and then on the other side to become study and do all that stuff is very hard nutritional science like changes every year mm -hmm. and to ask someone to understand research is very difficult I would say I'm a professional and I understand how to read research and it's still difficult for me. It's still difficult for me to look at different studies and understand what the study is. And to have someone take a weekend course or even five months, they're not gonna get it. They're not gonna get the breadth of what the whole nutritional science thing is. So on one hand, I think it is very difficult and it should be difficult to become a dietitian. But on the other hand, <laughs> the way we have to do it is also kind of backwards in my opinion too. So, I don't know if that answered all of that. That that did. I, you know, it's kind of strange that, you know, so many people are showing up in people's offices that call themselves a dietitian, mm -hmm. but passed a weekend course. Yeah. I think eating is very 
personal. We all do it. Mm-hmm. So everyone becomes an expert, if that makes sense. And I don't, I don't blame them, but sometimes that your confirmation bias really shows through sometimes. Um, people who are in the fitness industry, um, you know, I consider myself in the fitness industry, but there are some aspects of the fitness industry I don't know anything about, and I have no business telling anyone you know, to do anything, I think sometimes people might lose 10 pounds mm-hmm. and that becomes, well, I'm an expert now. <laughs> I, I did lose 10 pounds. This is what you have to do. Not taking in their spiritual beliefs, financial beliefs, their social economic status, whether they have children, are they doing it for aesthetics? Are they doing it for health? Are they doing it for, you know, emotional reasons? Mm-hmm. Like that's a whole package that people usually don't look into. Um, so it can be frustrating when I hear advice, like in the background, I'm like, Yes, but no, you didn't look into all these other variables you should be talking about. Um, so. Yeah, I have to put it on the record that how I met Colleen was at the gym, my client was frustrated about his meeting with his dietitian. And while standing there, Colleen basically fact-checked us. <laughs> on the everything that he was telling me which i thought was absolutely badass because many people probably wouldn't say a thing mm-hmm. you know and everything that came out of her mouth is why she's here doing this interview with me right now because i don't i think more people that are dietitians need to stand up and speak out on truth about their occupation and that was one of the things that i liked about you is how you just immediately you you stood ground you you spit out what was the truth and how it really is to be a true dietitian i respect Mm -hmm. you for that you know because not very many people would probably do that yeah thanks yeah and i i've heard um not to, but mostly from men, I get the, you know, I don't want to talk. Just tell me what to eat. You know, I'm like, I mean, you know what to eat, dude. Eat some vegetables and like not as much as everything else. Like, you know that. Most people know that. That's my degree in like a sentence. Stop eating so much and eat some vegetables. It's so, it's like the tip of the iceberg though. The tip of the iceberg is like eat vegetables. And then what's down here is everything else that comes into life like any anything else you want to change anything you get deeper into the bigger it becomes and more variables that happen and so when he was complaining i I felt like i was like okay maybe maybe the tidbit of information will help him look in a better direction of what his problem is i think that day it absolutely changed his mindset (laughs) you know i mean to the point where, of course, I'm sure he didn't contact you, but I advised him to contact Mm -hmm. you just because I liked everything that you were saying. And that's important, you know, Mm -hmm. because I don't believe that every person we go to, we're gonna absolutely like everything they Mm -hmm. have to say to us, so. Yeah, yeah, I I would say that too. You know, if you don't like the dietitian and you're not meshing for whatever reason, it's like, if you don't like your doctor, don't go to that doctor. Mm-hmm. If you don't like that mechanic, find a new mechanic, you know? They're, everyone has their weaknesses and strengths, and you also have your own weaknesses and strengths, and you just have to find the right person where you mesh well and you get your goal out there together. That's really all it is. I like that. Yeah. What is it that you are most passionate about as far as being a dietitian? Ooh, 
a good question. I, I think I have a couple. One, I really enjoy changing people's attitude and relationship with food. I think the more I look into it, the more I think people have very damaged relationships with food. Not necessarily eating like bad food or McDonald's, like, hey, I like McDonald's like everyone else. I'll get a cheeseburger every now and then. Same here. But the attitude of good food versus bad food and the shaming of themselves for eating something and the attitude we have towards what food is, I think food, I see it as energy and fuel and it has a purpose and it makes me feel good, mm -hmm. obviously physically, but also like mentally. And um, a lot of my job is uh, sometimes I talk to, you know, new diabetics. Mm -hmm. They are so frightened and so scared. And the first couple sentences they usually say is, I don't want to lose my leg. I don't want to lose my kidneys. I've seen my grandma die of this. You know, I don't know what to eat. And then all of a sudden everything is a fear food. Everything is anxiety producing. I can no longer go to birthday parties. I can't hang out on the weekends. What am I supposed to do? So being able to maybe on a clinical level with diabetics, but also everyone else too, is kind of reintroducing the attitude in which they look at food and their outlook and how they can reincorporate food back into their life in a very helpful, good, loving way where you mm -hmm. can still enjoy your life. You can still do holidays. Like food doesn't have to be this prison where it's like, oh my God, it's just chicken breast and rice for the rest of my life. No, like screw that. Like there's so much more to food than that, in my opinion. So that's what I really like. Um, and then I think cooking, <laughs> which is really simple, mm -hmm. but I think a lot of people going off of that We've really lost cooking in the last like several decades, myself included, I'm not perfect. You know, sometimes I do the fast stuff, um, but getting people to enjoy making their food and like making it, you know, something you work towards, you know, think about, you know, Thanksgiving, like why your mom or whoever slaved over the oven for eight hours, <laughs> like that's a good meal at the end of the day. Like you put work into that, yeah. you know? So, and like learning how to like, food prep and even in a simple way I'm not saying you need to do that every day just learning how to cook simple things for yourself can be very enjoyable and I think a lot of that has been stripped away from you know everyday life mm -hmm. you know for you know women are back in the workforce blah 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 we all know that um, so kind of reintroducing that back, back into people's lives I am really excited about because I think that makes a big difference too yeah for sure mm -hmm. you know when you're talking about those individuals that you know may be overweight why do you think they take so long to actually become proactive about them wanting to lose weight? Um, I think it's usually 10 different things accumulating when you finally you know, make that decision to do it for yourself. I think if you do want to lose weight and you are you know, overweight or what have you, um, it's for a reason, whether it's emotional reasons, it's financial reasons, it's the way you grew up. Um, food is a comfort for mm -hmm. people. Uh, food is very emotional. So I think having to make that step, like kind of going back to what I said, like, you know, to eat vegetables. Everyone knows that that's how you get healthy. Same with being overweight. You know what you need to do almost. It's making a game plan. It's getting the organization. It's having the social support, the family support, the mental support within yourself to know this is what I want, that you're doing it for yourself and you're not doing it for other people. Um, so I think you have to have like all 10 variables kind of come in to one to actually take that step. And if you're missing half of it, okay, you might go for a week, 
then you're gonna fall off the bandwagon, and then you're gonna get mad at yourself, and then it's this weird cycle of shame. <laughs> That's what I usually find for. Right. Yeah. You know, I was watching a TV show, which I'm sure you've heard, My 500 Pound Life. And she had to go to the dietitian because she wanted her surgery. Mm -hmm. And the, sur the dietitian said, I need you to lose 100 pounds before we have this surgery. Well, the 100 pounds was accomplished. Why do you think so many people just don't keep going rather than having the surgery? Mm. You know, in that type of scenario, when you are, you know, that many pounds overweight, the surgery, um, I, I only worked in bariatrics for a short amount of time. I did have to work with the bariatric dietitian and we were the last person to approve whether or not that person could get surgery. So we could turn to the doctor and say, absolutely not, like this person should not have this surgery. Um, and it kind of opened my eyes a little bit to bariatric surgery and, you know, the sleeve, you know, those types mm -hmm. of surgeries. Um, a lot of these surgeries are, um, like, almost emergencies. Like, if this person continues this life, they will die of a cardiovascular incident. So this surgery will save their life in the next, like, several years. So it's also changed my respect for people who do that decision, that it's not easy, and there's a whole host of problems that come with bariatric surgery. I wouldn't wish that surgery on anyone. I don't think it's easy. You are absolutely going to lose your hair. You're going to get vitamin deficiencies. You have a, a whole host of problems that come afterwards. That being said, I think it kind of goes back to mental fortitude and it's almost like a goal. Like they hit that goal and they think like, finally I can get this relief with the surgery. Like I don't want to do this anymore. It's such a mental burden that it maybe they don't want to keep, they don't want to continue. Like it, it killed them to do that and they hated it and it was a whirlwind and they just did it by any means possible. And then it's almost a light at the end of the tunnel. Right, right. You know, that's what I would think. That would be my opinion is, you know, but you're right, you know, why, why not keep going? But maybe the way they went at it wasn't even good in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I see a lot of individuals that have family members that become the enablers to their situation and their health issues as far as diet and health. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they are blind to the situation and how come they don't take a different approach? Like the parents are blind to the actions that they're putting mm -hmm. on to their children. Um, I think like anyone, we all have denial about the way we act in a certain way. You know, as we grow and we get older, we look back to our younger self and think, oh my gosh, you know, how did I ever act that way? Or however, you know, mature I was. I think it's the same as parents, you know, we might have blinders because we're in so such denial about how we feel, you know, for enabling or having bad habits. They're probably projecting to a certain point of like, they're embarrassed of their habits so badly. Like they feel so ashamed that they want to make their children do something different. And I think they're probably going about it the wrong way because that costs a whole host of other problems in itself but I think it has a lot to do with psychology and how people project their own insecurities and shame and it just kind of goes throughout the generations you know and it 
sports parents will always mess up their children no matter what they do. <laughs> so you do one thing and the kids are going to complain about something else. So you know, so many of us have grown up with the method of you need to finish everything on your plate. Clean plate club. Clean plate club. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that sometimes lead people into a direction of becoming overweight? I don't think necessarily overweight, but I think it predisposes you to have the bad mental habits going forward that could um my I was part of the clean my dad you know clean up your plate like hey kids are starving in other countries you know I and, heard it too you know we had to whatever and I always remember my mom would leave one bite of food on the plate and it would blow my dad up he got so upset he's like it's one bite just finish the last bite and she would say I'm full why do I have to I'm done you know and I didn't think about it until like years later where I'm like ha, wow should have been on mom's side versus how dad treated it. <laughs> um, but I think it creates an atmosphere of not listening to your hunger cues um, and ignoring it. And I think hunger cues are very important and they, they can get lost very easily. And I think it really does create a atmosphere of not understanding your body and what it needs because you're just shoving food in because it's finishing the plate mm -hmm. so i'm not a fan of the clean plate club although i understand why our parents you know and other generations might have done it you know especially my grandparents you know they came from you know depression area and they're like you have to eat everything because that's all they had yeah whereas now we have such an overabundance of food i can go get like a steak in two minutes flat from the 30 mile radius anywhere right, I want. Right. Like I have no effort anymore. Like I can leave the bite of food on the plate. <laughs> I remember when I went to Barcelona and um, on my way home, I had to, um, I had to um, fly into Houston. Well, my trip in Barcelona, I seen a completely different eating mm -hmm. with how the Barcelonians would eat, which is small portions, mm -hmm. versus when I got back to the United States and I landed in Houston and I seen so many overweight individuals. Why do you think cultures change so much when it comes to eating patterns? Um, I think because America is such a mixture of everyone and we're so spread apart that it's hard for us to have a food culture like our food culture to me it's kind of funny because it's like burgers and hot dogs and stuff and like <laughs> mac and cheese like that's I try to think of like what's American food culture like well that's what it is it's fast food because we invented fast food in the 50s and we're so proud of it it's just kind of um but you go to these smaller countries who have had generations and generations and generations of food input from their land and the people that like the ocean and like it really does influence how they eat and how they get around and their tradition and their religion and stuff but then you come over to America we don't really you know most of us don't necessarily live next to the ocean we're not farming off the mountain we're getting our food from China or Canada or one pocket of California and we don't really have any I mean, I could, myself included, like, I don't look at my apples, like, fondly, like, oh, I grew those, you know, right. I grew those <laughs> apples, and 
no, grandma taught me how to, no, there's none of that. Like, I don't care. I just get it from the grocery store and there's no emotional input to my like food. Whereas I feel like maybe for these other countries, like there is a pride factor of like, mm -hmm. we grew that for my grandparents taught me how to cook this specific recipe and you know, we share it and it's family style eating and we all do all of this where I don't feel like we have that over here. I feel like here, like we're running in and out of work, you know, shut the kids up, give them their chicken <laughs> tenders, you know, and I'm not speaking for everyone obviously, but like kind of what my opinion is, you know, it just kind of melts away very easily. When it comes to you working with your personal clients, what is your approach? I know it depends on the certain person and their needs, but in a generalized way, how do you go about working with your clients? Um, figuring out what the client wants. Um, I currently work in long-term care, which is a geriatric population, so I do a lot of end of life. I do a lot of um, older adults, and so I have no interest in making a 95-year-old woman uh, quote-unquote healthy. You know, what does she want? What does she want for her quality of life? If she wants bacon, I'm going to talk to the doctor to allow her to have bacon. If that's the only thing that's going to make her life enjoyable, absolutely. That is absolutely my goal. But I would say for everyone, you know, what do you want? I can tell you all day what I think you should do, but what does it matter what I want to do? You know, what is what are you going to get out of your life? And if there's something I can relay over to you and give you the information so you can make your own decision, I mean, I think that's what everyone would want from that type of scenario. What does it matter what I think you should do? I think everyone should be healthy and have great, you know, lipid levels and all this stuff, but maybe that's not your goal. Maybe you don't care about that. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's your life. Who am I to judge? Yep. Um, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, when I'm working with my clients personally and it comes to them having cheat meals, and I mm -hmm. always try to remind them that your cheat meal is supposed to not be detrimental to you, mm -hmm. but it's supposed to work for you. Mm -hmm. Do you go in that, do you use that approach in some way? I'd agree. Um, I think cheat meals, I always ask people like, all right, what's the definition of cheat meal to you? Because I feel like some people have like, well, I eat an entire, pizza and other people are like, oh, I have an extra brownie. So I get people to explain the definition to me of what they think a cheat meal is. And I, I would I would agree, like it's supposed to work for you. It's supposed to replenish a little bit. It's supposed to give you a little bit of a mental boost if that's what you're doing, mm -hmm. not what people, <laughs> some people think it is. Yeah, so many people, you know, their, their cheat meal is basically to eat all their calories back in a day. Yeah. And if that's the case, I usually tell people then you've been approaching the rest of the week wrong. If you feel that badly that that one meal is the savior to make you, I always have people go through like, you know, it's a lot of emotions and philosophy, but I'm like, how did that make you feel? What did that meal give you that the other meals didn't give you? Like you really have to look inside of like what's happening that you're having an endorphin rush after a meal. That means the rest of your week is so depleted and sad and like restrictive that it's like, is that really how you want to live? I mean, you do you if that's what you think is going to work. But in my opinion, like that's really not a way to go about it. You're just really setting yourself up for failure every single time. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. 
completely because I think that, you know, you're right. It's not supposed to be something that's supposed to make you gain 10 pounds mm -hmm. in, in a couple of days just because you're enjoying that one setting. Mm -hmm. um, but moving on, you know, when it comes to yourself, do you eat four, five, six times a day, or how do you, how is your approach personally? Currently, I think I only do two meals a day. I don't really eat breakfast. I eat a lighter lunch, and then I usually eat larger dinners, um, only because that's the way my work schedule is kind of set up right now. Whereas I get home a little bit later, so I end up eating dinner pretty mm -hmm. late. Like I'll eat dinner at eight, nine o'clock. Um, and then time breakfast comes around, I'm not really that hungry. I don't feel like my activity level is that high either. Um, when I lived in Chicago, I rode my bike like 70 miles a week. I think I ran 20 miles a week. I was walking to work. I don't really use my car in Chicago. So then, yeah, I would probably eat maybe four times a day, pack, pack snacks with me at any time. But here, I don't feel like I'm getting that activity level. So personally, you know, I, I have taken that approach many of times, whereas, you know, Jamie would go, aren't you hungry? And for my approach mentally, when it comes to food, I just don't think about it. I don't obsess over it. You know, I, what I eat is what I eat and I continue to move on. Why do you think so many people truly obsess over that? over food as much yeah. as they do. I think it's routine and habit. Um, you know, like Pavlov's dog where they like ring the little bell. Um, think about like people who work in an office. 11.30 hits, how do you feel? Go with my friends, go get some food. It's lunchtime, heck yeah. I mean, you only feel that way because it's 11.30. I used to eat breakfast religiously, like every single morning. Uh, as soon as like 9 a.m. hit, I'm like, oh, can't wait to have breakfast, so, so hungry. And then I remember one day like testing myself I'm like am I hungry do I need to eat and literally since that day I don't even really care about breakfast it's in my opinion it just becomes routine you know why at a certain time at dinner is everyone hungry well usually people are putting food on the table and so on and so forth but usually it's just the routine of okay this is when I eat you know oh I usually have a snack at this time I should be hungry so you tell yourself you're hungry yeah as a dietitian, would you use that same approach with yourself as with a client? I mean, would you recommend them having breakfast or would you go just basically go off of how you feel? Entirely up to them. I always ask them if they're going to work out too, because that changes everything. Yeah. Um, if they're working out, then we do a little bit more timing. And if they do plan on working out in the morning, you know, then we kind of go over, well, when was your last meal? You know, like eight hours before bed? so on and so forth um but if i feel like they're going to need an energy like meal at that timing then i would encourage it but if they're not working out and they're not doing anything and they don't really care about breakfast and they like like to sleep in then i tell them it's their decision you know but then we kind of go forward you know well let's meet back up in a month how did that make you feel did you feel like you were just cranky then by lunchtime let's adjust let's put breakfast back on the menu and kind of go from there and it's kind of a ever involving like you know how did, how does it make you feel <laughs> right when it comes to you know all the population as you were talking about earlier do they normally contact you for 
help about their eating patterns or how does that normally go? I would say usually once they get a diagnosis, that's usually when I get a call. Um, mostly diabetes and every now and then I'll get like a, oh my gosh, my cholesterol was so high that I'm scared. But it's usually once it becomes I am officially diagnosed with something. Um, a lot of the time you hit 70, your habits aren't gonna change that much in my opinion. Of course, there's always people who are who can and want to, but most of the time I find that, you know, once you reach a certain age, you're set in your ways. Just, you know, and I'm set in my ways in certain aspects too. So again, I'm not judging them or anything, um, but I don't get as much older clientele than probably younger people too. Awesome. You know, one of the things that, you know, that is so important about eating is making sure that whatever you do, whether you're having two meals a day or whether you're having six a day, is to make sure that you're being consistent. You know, making sure that your energy level, as Colleen ju just mentioned, is at its highest point. So you can get through the day without being or feeling exhausted. Um, like many of us do, when you don't eat, you become a little cranky. And then you go and eat and you go to sleep and you wake up and you do it again. When it comes to you and your clients, do you have them use supplements or do you suggest them or how does that work in your field? The only time I suggest supplements is when I have um, data to support that they need it. So for me, I, you know, I work in hospitals and healthcare. I can go off of, for example, I had a client the other day who has completely lost his sense of taste and his hair has been kind of thin more than normal at his age and his gait is kind of abnormal. You know, I don't have any concrete data, but that is uh, usually B vitamin deficiencies, uh, taste alteration and zinc. You know, so I go through a long history. I look all through all his lab work. We do diet recalls. I ask if he's eaten any food. For example, zinc is almost like seafood. You know, I doubt he's eating clams and mussels and you know stuff. So, and he's not. He wasn't. Um, and he can't taste sweet. He can't be salty. He can't figure out. He couldn't give me any adjectives of food. It was metallic tasting. Wow. You know, like those are usually indications of vitamin deficiency. So I pass that along to the doctor and I say. Um, I recommend a zinc, you know, zinc sulfate for two weeks to see if this would improve the symptoms. The doctor can pull labs to see if you're deficient, but that would cost more money and time than if I were just to recommend a supplement. So in that case, it's just easier just to, just to do the supplement to see if it would help the guy. Um, but in like everyday life, you know, maybe not necessarily an older population, um, I tell people if you're eating a generally healthy diet where you're trying to eat healthy, you're probably not that deficient. If you feel more comfortable having a broad multivitamin, go for it. Don't start spending a whole bunch of money because then I also explained to them, you know, just because you supplement doesn't mean your body absorbs it either. So that can also become a fat soluble vitamins versus water soluble vitamins con conversation where you know you can have B vitamins all day every day but it doesn't store in your body right. versus a fat soluble vitamin. So we kind of go into that. Um, 
And then most people like to ask about protein. You know, do you, you know, do you do protein shakes? Do you do that? I do when I'm lazy, if I don't want to cook. Like I'll definitely get a protein bar like at the gas station or you know, on my way to something or if I know I won't have protein for a while, like yeah, I will get that. Do I think it's necessary? No. But if you hate to cook, you hate to do all this stuff and you hate to do that, yeah, absolutely, go get a protein bar or a protein shake. It's, it's your money and your time. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's absolutely needed unless, you know, of those circumstances. Nice. When it comes to men versus women, what is your approach when working with when working with both? I know that, you know, men can lose weight a lot easier than women. Women, it's a little bit slower. What is your suggestion to them? I always tell women to lift weights. Um, most of the people that are in my circle of you know, friends who know I'm a dietitian, you know, we all kind of already lift weights, but if it was someone I had never met before, I would try to encourage women to lift weights and um, with, lift weights often. I try to explain to them the basic biology of muscle mass mm -hmm. and why men lose weight you know, faster. Um, and so that's usually my approach with women. If it's just bare bones, losing weight. Uh, with with men, it's usually it's usually just most diet. Mm -hmm. We usually just eat like a ridiculous amount of protein that they don't need, or like beer or something simple like that. And then usually, if they just cut their diet down, they're a little bit better. So right. men are actually sometimes a little more simple. What is the daily recommendation for protein since you mentioned that they probably don't need that much protein? Um, it would be very variable depending on, for a bodybuilder, someone who's like legitimately trying to put on mass, you can go all the way up to two, two grams per kilogram, like kilogram, like that's a decent amount. If you are an office worker, you don't work out, you don't really like lift weights, you're barely moving around, like you can put that down to one, mm -hmm. no problem in my opinion. Um, it really depends if you're trying to put on the mass, keep the mass, if you're cutting, you know, like trying to cut weight and you're deficit in calories but trying to maintain that lean body mass. Um, but in like a general sense, like one gram per kilogram, and my, I can't do the math right now because I go by kilograms, so I don't know what pounds is. But. Is the same approach goes for women as well? Yeah. I would say so. Um, same thing for office worker versus like actually active and doing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that can be variable too. I tell people, you know, just because you're eating, you know, these ratio of macronutrients today, you know, and then that's getting into really specific training, you know, then that becomes like nutrient timing, which is a whole nother ball game that I would never bring that up to anyone unless they're a seasoned athlete or seasoned mm -hmm. nutrient interested person. So, you know, the, there's this huge deal about macros, as you know, and then there's the bro diets, and there's so many different types. Mm -hmm. Please explain to people the proper approach when using macros. Uh, I always have people explain to me what their goal is. For example, the keto diet. Um, a swear word in my house I don't like to talk about it <laughs> mostly because the keto diet um, again has different definitions to different people in my world the ketogenic diet is a medically supervised diet by um, a doctor mm -hmm. for infants and children who are experiencing seizures 
and their ratio is four to one of fat and protein to carbs. It's disgusting. You're literally drinking oil to get the calories from fat and nothing else. And it's maybe 20 grams of carbohydrates a day. So that's one single piece of toast and then 1900 calories of oil, butter, and fat, and chicken, and turkey. It's nauseating. It's not something fun. And this child only does it for a short amount of time to decrease their seizures, to get their medication under control, to go forward with life. And then you get off that diet. It's not like a, you're not on that diet for life for the, these poor children. So that's a ketogenic diet in my opinion. The keto diet that is talked about in mainstream media mm -hmm. is the Atkins diet. It's been around for a long time. It's nothing special. Um, as far as the macronutrient breakdown, I try to go back to basic biology. Um, you're gonna lose weight in a calorie deficit. There's no amount of changing your macronutrient ratio that's gonna allow you to lose weight unless you're in a calorie deficit. Um, for the keto diet, I, people will lose about eight pounds in the first week if they are true to the keto guidelines mm -hmm. um, because that is water, water weight. A carbohydrate on a molecular scale is water. Mm -hmm. So for every gram of carbohydrate your liver or muscle glycogen like depletes, it takes, I think, I forget the math, it was like 0.46 grams of water. Whatever, you do that math, if you your liver is like, I don't know, 400 grams of carbs or something like that, you do the math, that's about six or seven pounds that you lost of water. And so I tell people like, yeah, you might look a little bit thinner because you're like dehydrating yourself. Um, but unless you're in a true calorie deficit, it doesn't really matter. And you can do the same thing with the Whole30 or the carnivore diet or any of these diets. All these diets lead to calorie deficit. Now, someone is just bees knees over keto and they like it and they want to do it and that's how they want to like live their life. Like I'll let them know how to do it but I don't you know it doesn't make sense to me unless they really like it and if you really like it then who am I to tell you what to do <laughs> very good point grand explanation um, <laughs> so when it comes to um, let's see here when it comes to you know eating once again because that's the subject that we're on but um, you know so many people have the tendency to skip meals rather than be consistent or you know rather than eating every two and a half to three hours do you recommend them being more consistent or do you just still just go off of how you feel mm. I would say most people would do well with more consistency because if they're coming to me, that usually means they don't have the organization in their brain to do it in the first place. You know, myself, I am a type A, my mind works like an Excel spreadsheet. At any given time, I could tell you like the calories and grams I've eaten and the timing, and it comes easily to me. It's just second nature. It doesn't even bother me. It's not even like a difficult Excel spreadsheet. My mind just does it. If someone's coming to me for, you know, getting healthy or losing weight or what have you, I already assume their mind does not work like mine because otherwise you wouldn't need me. You would have just figured it out by yourself. So for the most part, I would say most people do do better with some sort of, hey, like do this, like this is your plan, you know. If I kind of leave it wishy-washy, like how you feel, 
I think that can be good because again, it kind of goes back to their lifestyle and what works for them. Mm -hmm. But most people, if you were that organized and that on top of everything and know that much about timing and how to do about your, how your body's hunger cues work, then you are kind of the most normal. Gotcha. Let me ask you this. I see so many people when they're sitting on Instagram or social media and they're talking about you know their macro diet and they're replacing whatever they're eating with bacon yeah. or a donut or whatever mm -hmm. how does this work i mean i think you're talking um aesthetic fitness versus actual fitness and i think there's a big divide and i think both have their own you know spots um you know the, the gym we go to like that's a bodybuilding gym i'm pretty mm -hmm. sure like i see people like doing their you know competitions and back all the time they're there for aesthetics i'm sure the cholesterol might not be pretty <laughs> um but a lot of the time if they're doing true macro like that like uh, if it fits your macros is i believe what it called if that's what makes you happy and that gets the aesthetics you want then go for it because your goals are clearly aesthetic like and that's hard work so not to diminish their hard work because it is difficult to get a certain aesthetic or look or whatever if you're going for actual true biological health that's a completely different story and i would say they have to decide which way they're trying to go because that would determine whether or not you should be replacing your macros with bacon <laughs> now, explain to people what you mean by true biological health so not that i think bacon can't fit into a diet because I, I do think it can. Um, I think you can eat, I can eat um, milkshakes and smoke cigarettes and drink gin and never touch a vegetable. And I could probably weigh this amount right now if I was in the calorie deficit I need to be to be this weight. My blood work, my lipids, my cholesterol, my triglycerides, my heart rate, my lung capacity, my ability to breathe while running. That's what I talk about with like a biological like health standpoint. Gotcha. All of those can go out the window if I'm on a cigarette smoking, gin drinking, <laughs> french fry diet. And I might be this, I might, maybe my skin would look a little crappier, but like I would be this weight, quote unquote. Like I wouldn't move necessarily but my insides are dying. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. You know, I, in the hospital, I meet a lot of um, people who are in liver failure from drinking their whole life and they're actually underweight, you know? And so how do you look at that person and say like, oh, well, they're so healthy. Look at them. They're not, you know, they're not overweight. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> like their liver is literally failing them. Their other organs are in their skin, everything is falling apart. It's because of the lifetime of poor nutritional intake and lifestyle and exercise and blah, blah, blah. Okay. <laughs> so going back to um, cholesterol, you know, do you think it's better to make your cholesterol get lower from eating better or eating proper? Or what is the best way for those that are listening mm -hmm. to decrease their cholesterol in a healthy way rather than immediately going to the doctor and being um, prescribed medication? Uh, the easiest way would be to increase your fiber intake. Uh, that's the simplest, most like, hands-off approach you can take. Uh, most people don't get fiber in the form of raw 
fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Mm -hmm. um, oatmeal, for example, is an easy way just to do that. Um, and even further, you could do the whole soluble versus insoluble fiber thing. But in general, just increasing fiber. Um, fiber binds to uh, bile. Mm -hmm. And once you get that out of your body, the bile is what makes cholesterol. So you force your body to utilize the cholesterol that's already in your body. Nice. You know, so many people have the misconception that the only way you can get diabetes if you are overweight. Please explain to people why that is so not true. Yeah, there is a lot of different factors. Obviously, you have type 1 diabetes and type 2. They're actually completely metabolically different diseases. They just have the same outcome, and so they get kind of lumped into type 1 and type 2. Uh, type 1 is an um, autoimmune disease. You basically get it when you're either super, super young, or you can get a random virus bug that attacks your pancreas, and then you can become type 1. Um, I had a friend who went into the ICU when she was 22, not feeling well, walked out type 1 diabetic insulin for the rest of her life because the virus damaged her pancreas. Wow. Yeah. Type 2 is a slow, gradual insulin resistance that happens to your body. You still produce insulin, your body just doesn't utilize everything correctly. Um, I let people know like if they're easier it's if it's easier to understand almost like a picture like if you're trying to get into a door and the lock and a key insulin is a key and the other door is like through the cell mm -hmm. so insulin grabs things from your circulatory system to feed your body so type 2 is a slow breakdown of that that key's not working the door's not opening and it's based off of exercise diet genetics envi like environmental like you know stuff um you can absolutely be not that overweight mm -hmm. even like five ten pounds but if you've had a lifetime of inactivity um and your maybe family history is just riddled with you know guess what you might you might get it um so nice you know so many think that um you know or this is basically my thoughts. Why do you think that so many um, people think that taking insulin medication is the only way to go? Um, probably just ignorance of the disease itself and what it actually entails and just knowing, you know, I remember when I first started as a dietitian, I was in Longview, Texas. Um, I went straight from Chicago to Longview, Texas, and that was a culture shock. And, <laughs> and so I was in the hospital and I was talking to a family and they were basically arguing with me that they didn't really need me because like they, they'll just take insulin. And it was just this idea that insulin is, it's, it's medication that saves you. It fixes the problem, but it's multifactorial. It's, insulin is one part of the puzzle, you know, especially if you're type two and you've already gotten Put on insulin that's tell that tells me it's progressed very quickly because mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need to be on insulin when you're type 2 you actually started on an oral medication and told to exercise and if it's progressed so badly or maybe bad's the wrong word but it's so so much in the wrong direction that you need insulin that says that you've actually ignored the problem for much longer than yeah. it sh should have been gotcha 
You know, I happened to meet a lady years ago who um, had diabetes so bad that her legs looked like they were probably on the verge of needing to be amputated. Why does that happen and what can people do to prevent that from happening? Yeah, um, so diabetes, uh, you don't normally just have diabetes. Um, it ties into your blood pressure, hypertension. Um, so when you have high blood pressure, your arteries have scabbed over, is what I tell people. That's a good way of thinking about it. You now have plaque in your arteries and it's scabbed and it's not moving. So think if you were to clog up pipes in a house, obviously your pressure is going to change. You have teeny tiny little arteries and veins all over our body, obviously. Um, sometimes we think of the arteries we can see on our wrists as like, oh, it's, it's as big as that. It goes much smaller, it's microscopic. It's one cell at a time at a width. Those, those little arteries and veins are in your legs and toes and kidneys and fingers. And that blood pressure, as it goes up, it um, you burst that. You damage the nerves where it won't go back. You now have permanent nerve damage. And if that circulation can't go through the teeny tiny little veins and arteries or something, um, our veins carry more than blood. It carries, you know, tons of different cells that do tons of different things. They repair, they fix things. They bring lymph out of a different area. They do all these other things than just like have blood. If you, for example, damage that tiny artery at the bottom of your toe um, and you've damaged the nerve, you cannot bring the cells down to that area to fix it because it's blocked. It's blocked with artery. So it no longer can get down to repair it. But now you've damaged the nerves so you can't even feel it happened. That's why some people who have diabetes are very concerned about wounds. Mm. And that's how it usually starts if you get an amputation. You will get a wound on the bottom of your foot that starts as a tiny scratch that you and I would have every single day. You run into a table in an accident, you run into a corner or something, you, you nick yourself with your own nail. For you and I, that's no problem. We have functioning arteries and veins that bring um, oxygen and mm. cells to fix it. They don't have that anymore because their blood pressure is so high that it's damaged, it can't get to it, there's plaque in the way, and now their nerves are all broken and damaged and they don't feel it. And instead of healing, uh, your blood sugar is so high you actually feed the bacteria that have now entered your bloodstream. Because skin is obviously an organ, our skin is a very important organ. For you and I, we probably don't even think about it because it functions so well. For most people, if you get a scratch, there is bacteria in there. There's tons of bacteria. Everything we touch has bacteria. As a diabetic, now we don't have the way to heal it. We can't feel it. And now that bacteria is feeding on the sugar that is now in our blood because it's so skyrocket high all the time because we're not managing our diabetes. So that wound now gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it can't heal because even if I do take medicine, our circulation can't even bring it down to go fix it. It just stops halfway and it goes, well, back up I go, I got nowhere to go. And so it's multifactorial. Um, you don't just have diabetes, you have blood pressure problems too, you have hypertension. You have oxidative damage from not having proper nutrients. You have nutrition deficiencies. Mm -hmm. we, the 
vitamins and minerals do more than just like make us look pretty. They have very real like things they do. It's metabolism, it's chemistry. It's trying to go down there and do biology. So we don't have any of that. We don't have good like blood pressure. All these things are missing. That tiny little nick that you get, like for a diabetic is very serious, very serious. They need to look at their like wounds and skin all of the time because it can get very bad very quick. And that's usually how amputations happen. Wow. Wow. That just put me in, I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. I don't think, honestly, that many people really realize mm -hmm. the extent mm -hmm. of what you just explained, how it affects them if they never go and get help, mm -hmm. why everything is happening. I think a lot of people have diabetes in their family, so they think, oh, you know, everyone gets it, it's fine. I'm a little overweight, I take a little insulin. Um, you know, not because people want to be purposely ignorant. I think I think most people want to be educated. It just, you know, like I don't know a lot of things about cars. Like I'm not purposely ignorant. I'm just, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So again, no judgment towards anyone. But it is very serious. And you know, you asked me how I got into nutrition because of sports. But it kept me because of like my love of science. Like that that is fascinating to to me. It's horrifying, but mm -hmm. like fascinating at the same time. Um, like I enjoy eating healthy, not for aesthetics necessarily. Of course, that's a byproduct. Is mm -hmm. but like I like my functional ability to live and feel good, and like that is if I could relay that to some people, that's good because most people don't know that. Just because you know, why would they if they're not unless they're interested in this mm -hmm. type of thing? So you know, working in a hospital as you do now or have. Um, why do doctors put stents in people's certain areas in order to help them with their blood flow? Yeah. This is one of the things I, I want to know for myself, mm -hmm. simply because my mom mm -hmm. had 90% blockage in one leg, 70% mm -hmm. blockage in the other, mm -hmm. and I understand that it was because she's not getting enough blood flow but further than that, can you explain to those who's going to be listening to this why that happens so often? Mm -hmm. um, usually it's because it's so bad that it does it, it becomes like an emergency situation where like if you don't get a stent in there, you, you will not, like it's going to be blocked completely. Um, our arteries, including my own, um, you start getting plaque in your like teens. Like it just doesn't start. Naturally? Like, natu naturally, yeah. We... If you looked inside my veins right now, I'm sure you'd find a little bit of plaque, you know? Um, and it can't really be undone perfectly, you know? Even if you change your diet, you know, tomorrow, uh, you still have the damage you did as a teenager in your 20s or 30s or, you know, what have you. So the time you get to 90% blockage, um, you could still make changes going forward, but that stuff's still gonna be there. So like that doctor looked at your mom's like arteries or, you know, whatever um, in your legs, and said, okay, like this needs to be done. Kind of like the bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Like at this point, like we need to fix this like right now. There's no like, you know, no cucumber's gonna fix this right now. Nice. Not nice, but very yeah. informative. Um, so what all degrees do you have besides your dietitian degree? Um, yep, my bachelor's is in science and nutrition with a concentration of dietetics and then 
Uh, besides that, I mean, I'm a personal trainer. I've been certified through NASM for several years that I haven't really like used, which is kind of in the alphabet soup of my name. Um, <laughs> and then I'm licensed, and then I actually have a certifications in food service, um, safety and sanitation, because a lot of my job also entails compliance of um, food safety, which is another aspect of being a dietitian. Nice. What can you tell those who's going to be listening to this podcast who may want to use your services, where you're located, how can they get in contact with you, so forth and so on? Well, I am in Oklahoma City. I think I told you before I have uh, Instagram, but it's I don't really use it for much unless you want to see pictures of plants and dogs and stuff. <laughs> um, so my email would just be my name. It's uh, Colleen Barnett, and the number is 333 at gmail.com awesome so there you go guys I think um, Colleen has um, definitely gave us a very true insight on what it takes to become a dietitian what she goes through as a dietitian so if there's anybody who's going to be listening to this podcast be sure to get in contact with her if you're in severe need of help or even if you're not and you just want to um, get better at eating and learn more about yourself to better your health get in get in contact with her Colleen thank you for coming today I really appreciate your information that you're spreading it's really appreciative so that's today's episode with the real world